Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. The question of what is the kingdom of God is a question that theologians have asked and written about for millennia. What is the kingdom of God? How do we get it? And how does it change us? Mark tells us right here, and the very first words that he records out of Jesus' lips in verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1. And what he teaches us, the main point is this. If you're a note taker, get your pens ready. The transforming power of Jesus The kingdom of God, the rule and reign of his presence, the kingdom of God goes wide to the world and deep to the heart. The kingdom of God goes wide to the world and it goes deep to the heart. Now, what is the kingdom of God? There's a story that was written in uh, 1955 by Ray Bradbury called All Summer in a Day. Anybody ever read that book? It was a book that was written many years ago as a story of a people who were trapped on a planet that had no sun. And there are school children at this planet, and every day their teacher made these school children stand in front of an ultraviolet light where they would be exposed to light for just a period of every day so that they would remain healthy in this sunless world. And there was a child, her name was Margot in this Ray Bradbury book, and Margot remembers, she remembers and she knows that every seven years, every seven years, the sun comes out for one day. In this planet, the way that it orbits the sun, you get one day of sun every seven years, and this collection of nine-year-olds makes fun of Margot. They say, that's not true, Margot. The sun never comes up. She goes, no, no, no. I've seen it. I remember it. And as a two-year-old, she remembers the day that the sun came up. She remembers what it felt like not to be in front of the ultraviolet light in some dark room wearing these goggles to cover their eyes, but to really be exposed in the midst of the sun. And in the same way, when Jesus Christ comes on the scene in Mark chapter 1, Jesus Christ says, I'm here to bring you news that one day the sun will shine. One day the sun will permeate all the shadows of the world and will cast them aside. One day everything that you have stood in front of, make-believe, faulty, false beliefs of ultraviolet light that you expose yourself to to satisfy your hearts, one day the sun will shine. And it will shine on all that is fair. And it will shine beautifully. And the truth of the matter is, when you come to Advent and we think about the idea of God's coming kingdom, if we're really honest, we say, yeah, it's easy for you to say, preacher, you don't know what it's like to be married to him. You don't know what it's like to be married to her. You have no idea how much credit card debt I have. You have no idea what it's like to try to make ends meet. You you don't know what it's like to raise kids this time of life, year, in our world today. You don't know what it's like to be um, a teenage girl who is constantly bombarded with 
comparisons on social media. You don't know what it's like to be a teenage guy who is longing to try to walk in faithfulness, just bombarded with ads of pornography that I didn't ever ask for. They just pop up on our feeds. You don't know what it's like. like you know, and you know what? I don't. I don't know what it's like to be you. And you don't know what it's like to be me. But you know what's beautiful about being the church? We get to share our stories together and we get to remind each other, hey, you know what? There's a son. And just like Margot's Longing for the Sun in that Ray Bradbury book written in 1955, so also there are echo traces of us that say, we've seen it. We know what it's like. Oh, and you get, you get little glimpses of it when you put all of your hope in that Christmas bonus and it just makes you thrilled for the week that you get it, that everything is finally solved. But it is, even that is just a little echo trace of the longing of your heart for there to be one who comes, who provides true peace. What does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of God is at hand? What is the kingdom? In the Old Testament, the prophets of old longed for the coming kingdom of the Messiah, and they had a word for it. They called it shalom. Can you say that word? Shalom. It means peace, but it means peace that's not just the absence of conflict. It means the presence of true and lasting harmony. They longed for shalom. And just like Nathan led us in reading our confession of faith, Malachi and other prophets said that shalom is coming. And they looked for it, and they longed for it. And then here is this ragtag, John the Baptist, locust-eating, camel-wearing, camel-hair-wearing prophet that comes and offers baptism as the sign of the new covenant as a replacement for circumcision and as a way to bring in not just little boys, but also women into the church through the sign of baptism, the covenant sign, and John the Baptist bursts on the scene as he was prophesied about 400 years before he arrived. And then Jesus shows up, and his shortest sermon, I know you wish I'd preached this short, his shortest sermon ever, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is this. Here's the definition. The kingdom of God is the Father's rule and reign through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Father's rule and reign through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want us to just spend some time thinking about what those two words mean, rule and reign. There are two aspects to God's kingdom, His rule and his reign. And you know what the word rule means. Students, you know what a ruler is, right? What does a ruler do? A ruler measures the distance of something. And in the same way, God's rule is the length of his ruler, which goes across the entire universe. Psalm 103:19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all all. His rule refers to the extent of his kingdom. His rule refers to his kingdom. 
the extent of his rule. It rules over all. It rules over everything. Jesus is in charge of every conflict in the Middle East right now. Jesus is in charge of every aspect of the war in Ukraine. Jesus is in charge of every aspect of the American economy. Jesus is in charge of every aspect. He rules over all. His rule tells us that the kingdom of God goes wide to the world. But he also reigns, which means he goes deep to the heart. And the word reign means to be captivated by. Jesus captivates our hearts, not just to the breadth, but also to the depth. His reign refers not to his kingdom, but it refers more to his kingship. His kingship. Because the kingdom of God refers both to his kingdom and to his kingship. And I'm so glad that there are two aspects to the kingdom of God, because not only does he rule all over the circumstances of life, but because he has the ability to have kingship over the whole of our life, it means that my struggles over certain sins with which I've struggled with since I was a little boy, I have hope to mortify those day by day by day because of his kingship. The struggles that you have in your marriages, the struggles that you have in your personal relationships, the struggles that you've struggled with since you were probably little children. There's still traces of those things, and we have the ability to mortify those because God just doesn't rule over the breadth of the world, but he wants the entirety of your heart. In our hearts are little rooms. Some contain love and some contain glooms, but with each passing moment, we tend to lock them up tight, and Satan takes his lasting bite, but the Lord says, ah, I have given you the key to reopen those rooms in your heart and learn to live again. And in Advent season, Jesus teaches us that his kingdom has no end. It expands across the breadth of the earth and across the entire universe. His kingdom, but also his kingdom has a kingship. And I wonder if he's the king of your life. The kingdom of God is objectively true. It is like the sun. The sun is objectively true. Can we make the sun bigger? No. Can we make the sun brighter? No. Can we make the sun advance? No. What can we do? We can clear away everything that entangles us in the shadows so that we can expose ourselves to the sun. And that's the call of this church. And that's the call of evangelism. And that's the call that we're called to share the gospel with our neighbors. And that's why we are to invite people even to little low-hanging fruit events like the Uh, Christmas Eve candlelight ceremony where you invite your neighbors who have been in their house in the shadows all year long and they will come if you'll invite them. We invite them to hear the good news that's too good to be untrue that there has been one who brings both the kingdom, the true and great ruler, and he brings the kingship. He is able to help you in the depths of the darkness of your heart. If that's the kingdom, it has a king and a kingship, if that's the kingdom of God, the Father's rule and reign through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, well, how do we get it? And this, this is the most interesting aspect of the church today. The kingdom of God comes through proclaiming the gospel. The kingdom of God comes through proclaiming the gospel. There have always been those who have misunderstood the nature of the gospel. 
most of the time when you talk about the kingdom of God and a lot of theological literature today, immediately we jump to expressions of the kingdom through social justice and through civil rights and through making sure that the church is on the leading edge of cultural transformation, all of which is a fruit of the kingdom of God, yes. But the essence of the kingdom of God is the proclamation of the gospel. Notice what Jesus says here. Jesus comes onto the scene, and Mark is thinking, how do I begin to articulate in this short and pithy book, this book that only contains 601 verses, of which only 31 were unique to him, the rest of them were shared, between Matthew and Luke. And he thinks, how do I proclaim? Ah, I know. I'm going to start with the good news of the gospel, that the kingdom of God has come. And it is Jesus proclaiming good news. And what's the good news? The good news is that Jesus is there. The kingdom of God is at hand. I wish I could have seen his expressions as he spoke. I don't know if he said the kingdom of God is at hand, giving people no question that he was referring to his presence in the world. But the kingdom of God comes by proclaiming the gospel. And yes, should Trinity be about the very important work of pushing back the darkness in Tulsa Metro? Absolutely. But primarily, we are a church that proclaims the gospel of God. And it is my prayer, and I hope you join me, that in a hundred years' time, out of that building next door, people are proclaiming the gospel. When there are a thousand other gospels being preached, we are preaching Christ crucified in a hundred years from that church. Wouldn't it be beautiful? That your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will say, there goes forth the message of the kingdom. It is the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel had always been proclaimed. In Genesis 3.15, it was proclaimed that the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent, that there will be a future deliverer. In Isaiah 7.14, a virgin will give birth to a child, and we'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Isaiah chapter 9, the child will be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and He will establish an eternal kingdom. In Micah 5.2, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, in a small town. But His origin will be from ancient of days. In Isaiah 53, the gospel was the suffering servant who will come to bring salvation through sacrifice. In Zechariah 9, the Messiah will enter Jerusalem all on donkeys, symbolizing his humility and peace in the midst of a people who were longing for a courageous commander. He comes on the back of a beast of burden. In Jeremiah 23, it's a righteous branch from the line of David who will reign as king and bring justice and righteousness in the time of exile for God's people longing to have justice from under the hands of the Babylonians. In Psalm 22, David shows us vivid descriptions of the messianic suffering servant that even includes the piercing of his hands and feet. God's people have always proclaimed the gospel, and now Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is by proclaiming the good news of Jesus that we begin to see the gospel. Now, what is it? The kingdom of God is the Father's reign and rule through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's two aspects of the kingdom. It is a kingdom, and is it a kingship? How do we get it? There are a lot of smart people in this room. 
And a lot of you know the Bible very well. And a lot of you are learning the Bible very well. And you can know all about the scriptures. You can talk all about theology. You can know the kingdom. But if the kingdom has not placed its kingship upon your life, you don't yet have it. Because notice that Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't say through more Bible study. He doesn't say by giving your tithe. He doesn't say by serving the poor. He doesn't say by developing the spiritual disciplines, all of which are good and they're fruits, and we should do each of those things. What does he say? He says there are two pedals on the bicycle of our growth and holiness. Those are repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. When I was, when I was growing up, my family were huge Texas Aggies. My parents went to A&M. We talked about A&M all the time. And so the shock of when the Tauberts next door moved and in moved the family of Tommy Isabel, who now for 30 years have been good friends with my mom and dad and the people with next door to whom I grew up. And Tommy Isabel was once a quarterback for the Texas Longhorns. And I remember the tension of going over to Tommy's house, going over to the dark side, into the house of one who was a Texas, and not even that, but one who played quarterback for the University of Texas. And when I was a senior in high school, Tommy, who became a great mentor to me and many of our friends and many of the athletes in our city, Tommy um, uh, invited some of us to go to see the University of Texas and Notre Dame play in South Bend. Have you ever been to South Bend to see a game in the shadows of Touchdown Jesus? It's an amazing experience. And there's pictures somewhere, I couldn't find it, but there's pictures of us, seniors in high school, at, on our football team, who Tommy takes to South Bend, and we get our pictures taken with the Notre Dame cheerleaders. It was amazing. It was a great event. And I remember when Tommy gave us, he gave us the, he gave us the tickets to the Notre Dame game, and it got real, and we're sitting outside of the gate of, of the Coliseum there in South Bend. And it is one thing to have tickets, to actually know that you're invited, to be there in the scene. But you can go to the game all you want, but unless you actually take your ticket and you give it to the teller at the gate and she rips it in half and gives you your stuff and you go in the gate, you're not actually at the game. And so many of us, we know all about theology. We go to church on Sunday. We've been invited to the game. But so many of us do not practice repentance and faith. Some of you think, you don't really think this, but on occasion the Holy Spirit brings to mind that you grow in your relationship with Jesus because of your good behavior. But that's not true. Jesus doesn't love you more because of your good behavior. He couldn't love you anymore. He's given you all of his love. But as a result of us walking into the gates by faith and repentance, we don't just know the kingdom of God objectively, but we experience it subjectively. Not only is it a kingdom, but it's also a kingship. And we go into the gate. The irony and the upside-down nature of the gospel is that the way that you grow in the Christian life, as we've said many, many times at this church, is the exact same way you became a Christian, through faith and repentance. And here it is from Jesus' own lips right now. And what a privilege it is, O oh church, that we have to understand the nature of the kingdom, 
to know what it is. It's the proclamation of the gospel and how we get it through repentance and faith because the church, Irenaeus tells a story in the third, in the third century. Irenaeus was a church father and he tells a story to his congregation about a rich man's house. When you walk into this rich man's house and the living room is this beautiful mosaic on the living room floor. And if you looked at it carefully, the tiles and the gemstones that make up the mosaic portray the picture of a king. It was beautiful in the center of the house. And Irenaeus says sometime later he goes back to this rich man's house and he notices in the middle of the living room something doesn't look quite right. All the, all the stones have been pried up and all the gems have been pulled out of the mosaic and they've been rearranged. And instead of the, the face of this king, there's a face of a fox. And Irenaeus says to the third century church, mind you, that many inadvertently pull up the good news of the gospel and you take the same language and you retool them to find a totally different picture, not of the face of a king, but it's in the face of the fox. And the joke, Irenaeus says, is on you because there are a hundred self-saving strategies out there. More money in your bank account, a better home, just the right fit, paying off your mortgage, raising your children, deciding when and when not to give social media to your kids. How do you shape their hearts? Like There are a thousand different ways that we strive to live as faithful parents. And Irenaeus says, you go back into the living room and you see in the heart of the heart of the heart is there is the face of the king. And friends, so often we use the same language. Just listen to the Christmas ads. It's the same language. It's echo traces of our longing to be deeply satisfied. I mean, go look at the billboards when you drive downtown. Go look at the billboards. You know, the sparkles of Christmas. It's like what, it's, it's, it's trying to captivate us by some kingdom that we're longing for. And that kingdom, Jesus says, is here. It's in the gospel. And I wonder if you really believed it, how it would transform your marriage. I wonder if I really believed it, how it would transform mine. Jesus is in this room with us, and I wonder if he were to pull you aside as the gentle shepherd that he is and to wrap his arms around you, and he were to say to you, do you really believe this? If so, then. What would come after the then for you? If you really believe the gospel, then, how would we be changed if we really took in the gospel this season and believed it? If we walked in repentance and faith as a people. Now, the pre-Christian world of, of Acts and the post-Christian West has been compared more and more in recent days in theological scholarship. N.T. Wright Michael Boyd, they put it this way, in the pre-Christian world, it fostered competing religions due to open trade routes. But today, in the post-Christian West, we allow religious views to compete in the midst of an interconnected globalism. In the pre-Christian world, it elevated philosophy above religious dogma. But today, we elevate science and politics 
above religious dogma. In the pre-Christian world, it maintained superstitious beliefs in ghosts and devils and curses, but today's post-Christian world maintains superstitious beliefs in ghosts and devils and aliens. The pre-Christian world accepts belief in moral retribution, but today's post-Christian West perpetuates belief in some cosmic justice or karma. Both the pre-Christian and the post-Christian worlds believe that we are not alone in the universe. Interesting, isn't it? In the pre-Christian world, they believed in a kind of syncretism of all religions, but in today's post-Christian West, we believe in a kind of moral relativism where everybody gets to claim what is true in their own eyes. Friends, we have not progressed much as a human species in the last 3,000 years. And it's because we have the opportunity as a church in our little small corner of the world to go and to love your neighbor well this afternoon with the good news of the kingdom. We have the privilege of being able to invite others to this great news that's too good to be untrue because Christ came not as a cosmic ruler, commander, political figure. He came as a cosmic ruler, the commander of the world in the form of a child in the incarnation. Jesus came not to subdue Rome by force, but he came to subdue all of our hearts through the invitation to place your faith in him because Jesus pronounced his rule and reign at the cross where his hands were nailed and his feet were pierced for our salvation. Amen? And if you believe this, oh, how different our lives might be. One last thing before I close on the nature of repentance. Thomas Watson wrote a book in the 16th century called The Doctrine of Repentance. And Watson says, it's one thing to preach, oh, pastor, to people about repentance, but it's another thing to help them understand it. I so appreciate Watson's admonition to ministers in that book. And he says that repentance has really signs of genuine repentance. And I wonder if you would ask yourself if these signs are true in your life. Not in somebody else's, but in yours. He says, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. He says, It is a spiritual medicine made up of six ingredients. Number one, sight for sin. Do you see your sin? Do we have eyes to recognize sin as sin? Number two, sorrow for sin. Are you broken by it? Are you saddened by it? Or do you justify it? Number three, confession of sin. Do you bring it to the Lord and confess it to him as sin? Don't just see it. Don't just feel sorry for it, sorrow for it, but you confess it. Fourth, there's humility, which he calls shame. And in that day, shame meant humility. There is a brokenness and a contrition about your sin. Sight, sorrow, confession, humility. Five, hatred. Do you hate it? You haven't really walked from it in repentance until you've hated it. You hate what it does to you. And then sixth is that you turn from it. Sight, sorrow, confession, humility, hatred, turning, change. Those are the marks of true repentance. And I just want to invite you over the course of Advent, would you just join me 
and walking through those steps of repentance as we prepare our hearts to learn more about the coming kingdom in the coming days and as we await the great and glorious celebration of arrival of Christ's birth on Christmas morning. For some of you who are here for the first time, the gospel you're learning is not just advice about how to be a better person. It is good news about how you can be changed. And that news comes to you to be received by faith and repentance. And today may be the day of salvation for you, right in the middle of a gym. Jesus is the one who came to live a life you could not live, and he died a death you should have died. And he did it for you. And he doesn't just want to be something that you know, someone you know about, but he wants to have kingship over your life. He wants to dwell with you. Because all of those longings that you've had, like young Margot in that Ray Bradbury book, of knowing that there's a son somewhere, you know it, you've seen it, you've seen it. All of those longings have come true in Jesus. His son has shown once, and his son will come again. And all of summer will not just last today, but all of summer will last for all eternity in the midst of his rule and his reign as our true and eternal king. Amen? Let us be people of the king this Advent season and yield to him the whole of our lives. For the gospel is good news. Let's pray.